To our Father, we come with thankful hearts that we are still, we still have the freedom to gather in your name and to worship together and to study your word. And Father, I trust that we will never take that freedom for granted because in so many places in the world today, such freedom does not exist. And so, Father, we ask you to enable us to hear what you are saying to us today and pray that wherever there's human inaccuracy, we ask that you will give us straight thinking. And we ask, Lord, that you will be glorified here in our presence this morning. You'll minister to each heart. Lord, certainly there are those in our midst today who are hurting in one way or another, physically, emotionally, spiritually, financially, whatever it might be. We ask, Lord, that you might meet that, that need and strengthen our faith as we focus in on your presence today. In Christ's name, amen. Chapter 14 of Genesis. I'd like to begin with the first 12 verses. It came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Chedileomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, with Beersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these came as allies to the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedileomer, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year of Chedileomer, the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim in Shaveth Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their Mount Seir as far as El Paran which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En-Mishpat, that is Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who lived in Hazazon Tamer. And the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Admon, the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, came out and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Sidim against Chedileomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. But those who had survived, those who survived, fled into the hill country. Then he took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions, and departed, for he was living in Sodom. It's a very interesting little account that we have here in the book of Genesis. Sometimes we wonder about some of the accounts which were included, why exactly God chose to include these, because there are certainly numerous events in the lives of Abram and uh, Lot and others which are skipped over as you move from one story to the, ne to the next. The events that we find in this particular passage apparently occurred many, many years, several years at least, after the separation of Abram and Lot. When Lot cho chose what appeared to him to be the, the fertile valley of the uh, Jordan River and moved down there, and Abram stayed on the, in the hill country and ultimately moved down towards Hebron. This is probably several years later. Scripture doesn't say. It wasn't really critical to understanding that as we looked at this particular account. Apparently, Abram is well settled at uh, Hebron, and Lot 
has migrated all the way to Sodom, obviously, by this time. And as I mentioned last time, I, I really don't think that as Lot moved down the escarpment into the valley of the uh, Jordan River, I don't think he moved instantly down to Sodom. I think he migrated slowly down that way, sort of being drawn by what he heard and uh, about life down there in the area of Sodom. Now, this particular account that we read of, uh, this morning deals with a retaliatory raid and the importance of this raid highlights the role played by the trade routes that came through this particular area. Remember as we uh, think about the Fertile Crescent, there was trade routes that there were trade routes that went all the way from the head of the Persian Gulf clear down into Egypt and they went up the so-called Fertile Crescent, up the valley of the Tigris Euphrates, hooked over the top came down through Haran or crossed at Tadmor and then down through Damascus and all the way down through Palestine and over the top of the Sinai into the land of Egypt. Every segment of that route was important. And this particular passage emphasizes the importance of this segment of the trade route between Egypt and Mesopotamia. And what it also illustrates is the willingness of some kings to enforce tribute at such great distances. Now, for us today, we don't think, oh, well, you know, from one part of Iraq, just over there to the other side of, of the country of Jordan, really not all that far. And if you go by the highways that they have paved over there today, it isn't all that far. But when you're talking about marching up the Fertile Crescent and coming down the other side and bringing an army with you with no vehicles, it becomes quite a task. Now, somehow or other, Chedorlaomer has become overlord of the region of the Rift Valley, the, of the Jordan River Valley. We're not told when, we're not told how. We just have to assume that there probably was a prior invasion to this, whereby those peoples who lived along the Jordan Valley and in the Jordan Valley were made subservient to Chedorlaomer. Because we're, we read in this particular passage that they had, in, in verse 4, 12 years they served Chedorlaomer. So by that, we assume that at least 12 years before, there was a prior invasion whereby these areas were made tributary to Chedorlaomer. Now, we talk today about taxes, and taxes are, play a big role in the discussion, the debates that are going on right now. And for the most part, people don't like to pay taxes. We realize, of course, that they are inevitable. If we want government to function, there are there has to be taxes. Obviously, these people didn't particularly appreciate these taxes because the taxes they were paying to Chedorlaomer were not taxes that were improving the quality of life there in the Jordan Valley. They were, it was really tribute. It was protection money. It was sort of like the mafia racket, you know, that we have in parts of the country today, whereby you, you pay money just to, to keep from getting beat up and having your store burned down. And that's the situation here. The cities there at the southern end of the Salt Sea and other peoples who lived along the Rift Valley there were paying Chedorlaomer tribute because if they didn't, he'd come back over there and smack them. It was, they weren't gaining anything from it that we can determine. I mean, Elam's a long ways away from the valley of the Jordan River, especially when you consider the communication and transportation that was available in those days. So they became tired of paying this tribute. 
and they made a unilateral decision to cease paying the tribute. And that's what we read here. For 12 years, they had served Chedorlaomer, but the 13th year, they rebelled. They ceased paying tribute. They uh, ceased honoring Chedorlaomer as their overlord in the 13th year. So, what is Chedorlaomer going to do? Obviously, if people can get away with that, everybody under his rule would break free if they knew there would be no consequences of the effort to break free. So, he decided he needed to punish these rebels. And so, as a result, he begins to organize a coalition and to prepare for a march to the west whereby he will deal with these rebels. It was a big project. I'm sure that as he thought about it from his palace, possibly, probably in Susa, now if you can picture this, the current map I gave to you doesn't show that part of the world, but if you have the old map that we were working with before, Susa is way over in the foothills of the Zagros Mountains. Was. The ruins are still there. It is in a, a portion of modern-day Iran. And he had to march from Susa and pick up a coalition as he marched. He had to march up the Tigris-Euphrates River Valley, probably following the Euphrates River. He had to march clear up over the top, or at least as far as Mari, the city of Mari, and then he had to march west across to Tadmor, which was a city sort of in the desert there, and then for an oasis, and then he had to march southwest to Damascus, and then from Damascus on down the King's Highway. This was a long process. It was a long march all the way from Susa to the Red Sea, the, actually the Gulf of Aqba there, the little kind of rabbit's ear that sticks up on the right-hand side of the Sinai Peninsula, to that point is a 1,200-mile journey. Now, for you and for me, 1,200 miles, we hop in our car, two days, we've done it, right, without any great difficulty. But when you're walking and, and you're transporting supplies, and you're carrying your weapons with you. And, you know, the bulk of the army was infantry. Some probably was cavalry, but most of it was infantry. They had to walk. It's a long, long trip. It's a long journey. And so we're talking about probably at least two months after he has the coalition together just to get there. So it's quite a project. He couldn't just say, yeah, I want you guys to go over there and, and teach those guys a lesson. I mean, he's talking about a major project here. It probably cost him more to put this military expedition together and to go over there and carry out the retaliatory raid than he would garner in a year of tribute from that particular area. But the idea, of course, was long-term. He'd been receiving tax money from them for 12 years. And obviously, if he didn't receive it for another 12, that would be a greater loss than the cost of this particular expedition. Now, joining with Chedorlaomer, in this particular little venture are four other kings, three other kings mentioned here. First we read, there is Amraphel of Shinar. Now Shinar, we know, the plain of Shinar is equated to Babylon, the, the plain of Babylon. Now there are those who would tell us that this Amraphel was Hammurabi. Now if you're not terribly familiar with your ancient history, 
Hammurabi was the greatest king of the Amorite kingdom of Babylon. And he ruled back in the 18th century BC. And he is the one who, who had um, ordered the production of a great stele, a kind of an obelisk as high as this room, upon which were written the laws that he had codified during his time. It's called the Code of Hammurabi. And there are those who say that's where Moses got his ideas for the laws that you find written in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and so forth, which, of course, is nonsense. Hammurabi's code is, yes, it's kind of an eye-for-an-eye code, but uh, Moses' laws are so much more obviously from the mind of God than, than these human laws are from, from Hammurabi. And I'm sure Moses probably had no contact <laughs> with Hammurabi anyway, uh, that is with his, uh, the fruit of his kingdom. Hammurabi was long dead by Moses' time. Now, could this possibly be Hammurabi? No. It can't be because he lived at least a hundred years after the time we're talking about. And so he can't be this person. So Amraphel was probably one of his predecessors. Arioch of Elisar. Exactly where Elisar was, the scholars do not know. But they think possibly he was the king of Mari, which was a very important city-state on the middle Euphrates River, or possibly the king of Larsa, which was an important and powerful kingdom in the period between the fall of the third dynasty of Ur and the days of Hammurabi. So this is, this is very possible. And it's located in the same general area. Uh, and then title king of Goim. Uh, this is very interesting because in Hebrew, the term goyim means, just simply means Gentile nations. So it's probable that we're not talking about a country here called goyim. We're probably talking about a collection of tribes or peoples who have simply joined together, uh, affiliated under this man title, and so he has uh, added his forces to those of Chedorlaomer, Amraphel, and Arioch. And so as you think about this, it really makes a lot of sense. He's coming from Elam, which is at the far southeast corner of the um, Fertile Crescent. And as he comes uh, northwest, he comes to Shinar, he comes to Mari, and he comes to northern Mesopotamia. And along the way, he garners this army of, uh, of cooperative kings who aid him in this invasion to the west. It reminds me of uh, William the Conqueror, who when he conquered England, he promised to the various dukes and counts and other important officials over in Normandy where he was living that if you come with me, you will profit greatly from the conquest of England. I'm sure that uh, uh, Chetelamer promised that these individuals would profit greatly from their cooperation with him in this particular invasion. Now, there are those who have questioned the historicity of this event. If you ever yourself, and I'm sure many of you have, pick up various commentaries that deal with the Old Testament, particularly with the book of Genesis, you'll find that they vary radically in their discussion of these matters. Some are very literal, and they, they treat each event of the book of Genesis as a reality. Others just like to treat it as if it were a fairy tale of some sort. And, uh, you know, that this is a legend and that these are stories concocted possibly by Moses himself uh, for the purpose of, of illustrating a point. Now, the point of this chapter is the uh, encounter between Abram and Melchizedek. That's really the point of this chapter. 
And the, chat, the other information is, is the context of it. You know, that's what I love about God's Word. God doesn't just slam up truth to us without giving us a context for it so that we can grasp how it really fits into reality, how it's operated in the past. Uh, all the way from Genesis through Revelation, God keeps illustrating His truths over and over again. Notice how many truths He tells us repeatedly. Our thick skulls sometimes require many <laughs> repetitions of the truth before we really understand it. And so here we have this event. There are those who say, but no Mesopotamian kingdom at that time was strong enough to assert its influence clear over in Palestine, let alone Elam. But the problem with this is, the further back in time we go in the study of history, particularly after we pass about 500 B.C., the more hazy history really becomes. The less uh, written information is available, and the more we're dependent upon archaeological research. And archaeological research is wonderful stuff. But when it comes to nailing things down and, and saying that this happened at this time in this place and this is how it happened, it's not so easy to do with archaeological materials if there's no written account to go along with it. And so the fact that we have no other account supporting this does not mean that this is not a historical event. We personally, I feel, that we have to approach the Word of God as straightforward His description of events which really happened for us to understand. And whenever it is parabolic, it's usually clear that that's so. You know, Jesus says that this is a parable, and then he tells this particular event. There's nothing that tells us that this is a parable or, or some kind of a story made up so we might understand the truth of the encounter with Melchizedek. So I believe that we're looking at an event which really transpi transpired, and there's never been anything to contradict that belief. Now, you'll notice there's a time gap here between the time that the cities rebel and the, the, the retaliatory raid is carried out by Chedorlaomer. In the 13th year, the rebellion took place, but the forces don't arrive until the 14th year. That's slow reaction time, isn't it? But you have to think about the fact that he had to receive the message of the, of the uh, rebellion. He had to garner his forces together. He had to talk to these other guys about a, a coalition. He had to get together the supplies. He had to plan the route. He had to do all these different things and then march over there. You can see how easily a year would evaporate in that particular process. The coalition forces swept right down the king's highway. Now, on this little map, you have illustrated for you the, the western side of the trade routes. Now, the trade route came across the top of the Fertile Crescent. It came through Tadmor. It came down through Damascus. And Damascus is up here at the top of the map. At Damascus, the trade route divided. It divided into two branches. The more heavily used branch is the Via Maris, the one that goes to the west and then travels down along the coast. Via Maris means the way of the sea. 
The uh, lesser used but still important route was the one that went almost due south out of Damascus, the so-called King's Highway. It's called that in Scripture. The King's Highway that came down the plateau that was to the east of the Jordan Valley, the east of the Great Rift Valley. Let me just uh, remind us of something. There is a great crack in the ground, if you will, that begins way up in Lebanon, up near Baalbek. And that crack in the ground, which is called in geological terms a rift valley, runs southward, almost due southward. It runs through the Jordan Valley. The Jordan, valley run, the Jordan River runs in the rift valley. The Sea of Galilee, the Dead Sea are in it. It continues all the way down to the Gulf of Aqba, which is at the bottom of your map, which is the eastern side of the two ears of the rabbit, you might say, from the Red Sea. It goes through the Red Sea. It penetrates southwestward through the Ethiopian highlands, and the Ethiopian highlands are split by this valley that runs through it. And then it runs into East Africa. It divides in East Africa and runs on the both sides of the great uh, Lake Victoria. And then it runs through the great lakes known as Tanganyika and Malawi, Malawi. And then it goes out to sea about the mouth of the Zambezi River. It's really the longest rift valley on the surface of the earth that is not under the sea, land surface. It's much longer and much more significant than our famous San Andreas Fault. Uh, there are places where the cliffs just, I mean, they're, they're thousands of feet high and they plunge down into the valley. Well, they are that here in the Jordan area. I mean, these cliffs are 4,000 feet above the bottom of the Jordan Valley. And so it's, and it's steep as they drop down in there. And that's why it's really interesting to study the story of the invasion of Israel by Moses, well, actually under Joshua's leadership. After they took the city of Jericho, they had to go up to Ai. And we look at the map and we say, oh, well, they just had to go over to Ai. We don't realize that they had to climb over 3,000 feet out of Jericho up to Ai to make this attack. And we've stood on the side of Ai and looked down into the valley. And it's a steep hill they had to climb up there to get to Ai from Jericho. And it's easy to understand how in the flesh they could be routed by a few enemies. Uh, if the power of the Lord is not with them. And so, what they're doing, this invading army, is not traveling in the valley, but traveling along the plateau that is to the east of the rift, the escarpment that drops into the rift valley. So they're traveling the highway along the east side here. And that is, of course, basically the country of modern Jordan, down through that particular area there. The places that you find listed in uh, verses, well, verse 5 particularly, it says that uh, he defeated the Rephaim, the Zuzim, the Emim, the Horites, and so forth. As he went south along the plateau, he defeated the various nations, tribal nations that lived in that particular area. We cannot view them as great kingdoms, but just as tribal nations who lived in that particular area. And he struck as far south as El Paran. Now, as far as we're able to tell, most of your ancient, ge the students of ancient geography will tell you that El Paran is the same as Ezion Geber down here, modern Elat at the head of the Red Sea, 
or the Gulf of Aqaba down here. So he traveled all the way from Damascus down the King's Highway to its very end here at the Gulf of Aqaba, El Paran. I mean, this guy was making a clean sweep. He was doing a thorough surgery, you might say, as he knifed his way down through there, down the east side of the Rift Valley and then into the Rift Valley itself at the Gulf of Aqaba. Once he had achieved that place, there was no purpose in going any further south, so we're told that he swung to the north and he marched out here to Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea. Now, Kadesh Barnea will be an extremely important site later on when the children of Israel are coming out of Egypt and they arrive at that particular place under Moses' leadership. Uh, Kadesh Barnea is a, is a site out in the wilderness there, the wilderness of Zin, which is quite a place. Um, there, if, you go, if you go to Israel and you travel in the southern part of Israel, there's a place where they have built a memorial to uh, Ben-Gurion, the former leader of Israel. And that memorial is right on top of a cliff. And you stand there at that memorial and you look down into the wilderness of Zin. And it's quite, I mean, it's, it's really a spectacular view. And you could just visualize the children of Israel coming up through this area. There's just one little creek down there that wanders through this otherwise total desert, it seems like. And uh, so they're marching up into this particular area, attacking Kadesh Barnea. Now, it's very important, I think, for us to note something here. There are those who criticize Bible passages because they say, well, let me show you an example here. Verse 7, Then they came back and came to in Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites. And some say, Aha, we have found an error because the Amalekites didn't exist yet because Amalek hadn't even been born. So this is an error. No, it's not an error. As Moses described these events, he used the terms as they were in his day. It's like we would today. You know, if we're talking about what happened back out uh, early in the history of the United States, we, we'd say, well, the Indians who lived in what? California, right? We'd call it California. Uh, the Indians who lived here in California, we talk about them all the time, in fact. And, and there was no California when the Indians lived here before the Spanish came. It wasn't California. Who knows what the Indians call it? You know, each Indian tribe called it by a different name. And so what, what Moses is doing here is saying Kadesh in the land of the Amalekites, which was something that the Israelites would later know. But in the time the event took place, it wasn't the land of the Amalekites because the Amalekites didn't exist yet. So we have to always remember that as, as Moses presents it, it's sort of like when he said that Abram came from Ur of the Chaldees. Well, the Chaldeans were not an important people in the day that, that Abram lived there. It wasn't the land of the Chaldees yet. It would be that later. But it wasn't at that particular time. doesn't make it an error at all. And it is not. From Kadesh, Scripture tells us that he moved, for they, that this tribal, cult, this, this army under Chedorlaomer moved to the north and attacked the Amorites at Hazazon Tamer, which is closer to the Dead Sea. Uh, it's not on your particular map, but it would be approximately where the A is in the word Arabah, the second A, third A, A-R-A-B-A-H. About there would have been where Hazazon Tamer was located. 
as far as your little map is concerned. They were headed into what, as far as this story is concerned, was the most important battle of this whole campaign. And that was the battle with the, the uh, alliance of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other three cities. That battle would take place. It's good, good to uh, wonder, where did it really take place? That battle took place in one of two places. Either it took place about where the H, or just north of the H in the word Arabah, or it took place where the southern end of the Dead Sea appears on this particular map. There are many who believe the southern end of the Dead Sea didn't exist as we see it here on this map in those days, and that Sodom and Gomorrah are located under the southern end of the Dead Sea. Now, if that is true, it's very possible someday in the future that those remnants will be discovered if there were any remnants because the southern end of the Dead Sea is rapidly evaporating today. Uh, the Israelites, the Hebrews, the Jews, I guess I should say, have built a canal from the north end to the south end to try to keep water flowing because as that water evaporates, it produces tremendous amount of salts and other minerals which are useful in industry over there. But you see this little... Uh, piece of land which projects into the uh, Dead Sea. Well, that little piece of land now is, is uh, filled in all the way across today. And when you stand, for example, at Masada, on the top of Masada, and you look out there, you can see it's, it's, it's land. And, and down on, there's a little bit of water left in the southern end of the Dead Sea, but it's completely separated from the northern end, except for the canal that they have built to connect those two pieces of water. So it's possible that the, the valley of Sedim was under the southern end of the Dead Sea or that it is in the area just south of that because there have been quite a bit of study done in recent years and some have tried to show evidence that right along the east side of the Rift Valley at the south east corner of the Sea of, De of the Dead Sea and going south from there that there's a series of oases and that those cities were located on those oases, sort of like on beads on a string running south from, from the Dead Sea. doesn't really matter that much as far as understanding this story is concerned. It's in that general area there at the southern end of the Dead Sea that this battle takes place. Verse 9 tells us, at the very end of the verse, four kings against five. And, of course, that's true. But what we need to note is it's not four kings against five in the sense of, well, the five have one more king than the four, therefore they'll have the advantage. The four kings are kings of kingdoms, of, of large areas. The five kings are kings of little city-states. So probably Chedorlaomer alone would have been more powerful than the five city-states combined. But just to make sure, he, of course, brought this great alliance with him, this coalition, and the great battle was fought. I don't think it really was much of a battle. I think it was a massacre from the beginning. The forces that Sodom and Gomorrah were able to put in the battlefield were probably vastly outnumbered by the thousands of troops that Chedorlaomer had with him. 
And the Mesopotamians, were told, routed the Sodomite Confederacy. How do we know it was a rout? Because it says they fled and they fell into the tar pits. Well, you know, if you're orderly marching away from a battlefield, you don't fall into tar pits to be later exhumed as some sort of a fossil, you know, as they do down at La Brea. The defeated soldiers fled. Some of them, I think, fled up into the hill country, up above Sodom and Gomorrah. And the cities lay desolate, open. Can you imagine the feeling? Put yourself in the place of the women, the children, the old people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Their army has been destroyed. The men are gone. There's no one to defend the cities against the invading army. And so the army moves into the cities, all five of them, and totally pillages the cities. Scripture tells us here that they took even the food out of the city. You know, they sacked the Rayleighs and the Safeways and everything else of that particular day. They took the food, they took everything that had value, and they took the people. Now, you and I live in a day when, when war occurs and one nation overcomes the other nation, normally the, the conquered nation has at least some measure of security against slavery at least, but not in those days. These people were captured because they would be taken back to Mesopotamia where they would basically all be sold into slavery or enslaved by the very captors themselves, which means that the women, the children, probably the old people were left behind. They were of no financial value uh, to the conquering army. So they would take the women and the children, all of which would have economic value. The slave market was, was wide open in those days, as it has been through most of history <coughs> until the modern times. And that's quite often what happened. When one area conquered another, the people were enslaved. Uh, prisoners of war were often converted into slaves. So that's what these particular people faced as they were carried off. Very, very ominous statement is made in, at the end of this passage here. Verse 12 says, They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed. And then there's a comma, and the last phrase says, For he was living in Sodom. What if he had not been living in Sodom? I don't think he'd have been taken. We may never even have had this whole event. Somehow, some other way, there would have been the cause for the encounter between Abram and Melchizedek. I think it's important for us to understand that God carries out his perfect plan through what he finds to be transpiring. Nothing takes God by surprise, of course. In this part of the world today, as you visit over there, you discover uh, the majority of the population are Muslims. A Muslim is a fatalist. He believes, as the in, in the words of the old song that used to be sung here in America, que sera, sera, right? What will be, will be. So why fret it, you know? It's going to happen. That's fatalism. That's, that's simply believing no matter what you do, it's going to turn out a certain way, so, hey, how you live each day is irrelevant. For Christians, this just isn't so. God has a plan for our lives. He has a 
plan for each life in this room individually. But God has also given us free will, free choice. And you and I make choices every day. We make good choices. Sometimes we don't make good choices. But God has given us that power. We can choose to do His will or we can choose to not do His will. If that weren't so, then the Scripture wouldn't have to spend so much time talking about if you sin, confess your sin and, and God will cleanse you and, and teaching us the way in which to walk. If we choose to disobey, we can move out of God's will and something can happen to our lives that would not have happened had we walked in obedience. We all are familiar with this passage. Let me just read a few verses from Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean unto your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. If in all of our ways we acknowledge him, he promises to direct our paths. If we acknowledge him in the job that he gives to us, the career that he gives to us, he promises to direct our paths. If we not acknowledge him in our marital affairs, he promises to direct our paths. If we acknowledge him in the raising of our children, he promises to direct our paths. If, if we acknowledge him in the uh, fellowship of believers that we choose to become a part of, he promises to direct our paths. But what if we don't acknowledge him? What if we say, hey, I know how to do this. I don't need God's help. And so we go crashing off into a particular way. We have not acknowledged him, therefore we do not have his promise to direct our path. We can say a lot of things about Lot. We can say many things about Lot. We could say that uh, Lot wasn't really a believer, and therefore what he did was just foolish because he was a foolish man. But doesn't square with later teaching which tells us that his righteous soul was vexed by what was going on in the city of Sodom. Now, God doesn't call a person righteous if he is not righteous. So, so Lot was walking in a way contrary what, with what it would appear to be God's will for him. And therefore, he paid the price. Whatsoever we sow, we shall reap. Now, that's not only a phrase that's true for the non-believer, it's true for the believer. It's a, it's a truth of God. It's, it's something that God sent in motion as part of life on this planet. And so it's important for us that we in all our ways acknowledge Him and then we have the direction of our path from Him. We, we must not choose to walk a particular way in our own strength because we figure, hey, look, I've had, I'm educated in this area. I know my job. I'm able to do my job well. I don't really need God doing anything for me here. I can handle this. Um, let him under, you know, take care of other affairs in my life. Now, hopefully that's not the way any of us think. But there are people who, as you look at their lives, it seems like only on Sunday they acknowledge God. And the rest of the week, you wouldn't even know they were a believer. In many instances, they probably aren't. And I think that Lot got himself in a situation that he did not have to be in. And had he not been in this, then Abram probably would not have been involved either. And thus, God would have directed some other way. 
And I still think we would have the delightful and exciting encounter of Abram with Mel and Melchizedek some, you know, in context of some other event which took place. But this is the one that we have for us because Lot made his choice and God works with that choice. And God brings good out of evil, even for those who sometimes are not looking for his direction. Let's look at verse 13 of Genesis 14. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and the brother of Aner. And these were allies with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative, his nephew literally, had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions, also the women and the people. That's not meaning to imply in any way that women aren't people. Uh, <laughs> the, it's simply emphasizing that the women were part of the captivity. And the term people refers, of course, basically to the children that were with, were with them too, and, and possibly some older men, but not too likely very many of them. Somebody escaped from the battlefield, and he went and told Abram. Now think about it for a minute. Why would somebody escaping from the battlefield go tell Abram? Who's Abram? What does he have to do with Sodom and Gomorrah anyway? He probably had never been there. This tells you something. It tells you that the person who escaped, the fugitive, must have known what? Lot. Must have known who Lot was. And must have known that Lot had an uncle. And that his uncle lived up in Hebron. This fugitive had to know these things, it would seem, in order for him to run from the battlefield seemingly straight to Abram. Interesting points to note here. First of all, the fugitive had to run at least 50 miles. Now that's a double marathon. <laughs> now I'm not telling you that he ran the entire time, but he went off to carry this particular message. And if those of you who have never been there, it's, it's hard for me to describe it so that you might really get a good view of this, but it's hostile country between the southern end of the Dead Sea and Hebron. It's rugged country that you have to travel through. It's the Judean wilderness. And that's, you know, the Judean wilderness is where Jesus wandered for 40 days and 40 nights and encountered all of the events that we read about there in Matthew. And to make, to make matters worse, worse, worse <laughs> he not only had to run 50 miles, but it was uphill almost every step of the way because he's climbing from 1,300 feet below sea level to Hebron at 2,800 feet above sea level. He's traveling 4,100 feet through the course of 50 miles. 
So it's not exactly what you'd call an easy marathon or double marathon that this guy is running. Secondly, we discover in this passage that Abram is called the Hebrew. This is the very first, first instance in Scripture where that term is applied to Abram, where he is called the Hebrew. And as I mentioned before when we discussed uh, the lineage, probably this meant descended of Eber. <coughs> probably is the origin of the term. It becomes permanently affixed to Abram's descendants as you begin to study the life of Isaac and Jacob. And the term Hebrew becomes rather generally applied to those people as time passes. Thirdly, we discover in this particular passage the fact that Abram had established an alliance here. He had established an alliance with the local Amorites. And they are named for us in, in this particular passage, Mamre, Eshkol, and Aner. They were brothers, we're told. And Abram had established a, a military alliance, maybe economic alliance, we aren't told, but at least a military alliance. And I think it was pretty formidable for that area. With Abram and his household and these others in their household, they probably could control the Hebron area pretty well with the military force of their particular alliance. But we're not talking about controlling some local uh, village area now. We're talking about an invading army of certainly thousands of trained soldiers, vastly outnumbering the alliance that these four men could assemble. That being true, Verse 14 gives us an insight into the character of this man, Abram. Now notice, it says, And when Abram heard that his nephew had been taken captive, comma, he led out his trained men. Now if you were Abram, and just a few years before you had this encounter with your nephew, and you had been so gracious as to defer to your nephew and give him the choice of the land in which to live. And he greedily chose what he thought was the best land and marched off down into the valley there to rub shoulders with the pagan Canaanites who lived down there and actually to live in one of their cities. What would you feel like? Well, first of all, Lot was disrespectful to Abram in, make, in, in, in agreeing to make that choice. It had been offered to him, but he should have deferred to his elder and said, no, you're the clan chief, you make the choice. So he was disrespectful. He was unthankful, obviously. He was selfish in choosing what he thought was the best for himself. Whether it was the best or not doesn't really matter. He thought it was. And that's what counts, and that's why he chose it. So Abram's thinking could have been well, let the guy fend for himself. He made his choice. You know, let him fend for himself. Or he could have thought, this, this young man is so foolish. He has chosen to live in the wicked city of Sodom. Therefore, he's just getting what he deserves. He should, this is what should happen to him. Let him learn his lesson the hard way. Thirdly, he could have said, even if I want to help him, what is my puny little force going to do? 
against this massive army that has carried my nephew off. They greatly outnumber us. They've just defeated six nations and a, and a five-city coalition with all the military force that that implies in the Valley of Sedim. What can I do? What could I do? This isn't on your outline, but let me read a verse that maybe it came to your mind too as they asked that particular question. 1 John 4, 4. We're all familiar with the verse. Very, very important verse. Tends to answer a lot of questions. 1 John 4, 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because, what? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Abram could easily have said, what could I do? My force is too small. Just think of Gideon, when God kept paring down his force, paring down his force, and he ends up with 300. What in the world are 300 going to do against the tens of thousands of the enemy? Well, greater was he that was in Gideon in those 300 than he who was in the forces of the enemy. Greater was he who was in Abram than all the forces of Mesopotamia. It didn't matter if there were 10,000 or 100,000 troops in that army of Chedorlaomer. Remember what happened in the days of Hezekiah when Sennacherib sent a note to the king and he said, your God is like all the other gods. I've carried them off in a cage and I'll carry your God off in a cage. And, Jer and, and uh, Hezekiah had the sense to take the letter before the Lord in the temple and say, Lord, this is what the man has said. What do you think about his letter? And through Isaiah, God said to Hezekiah, not a single arrow will fly over the wall of the city of Jerusalem. And God took out 185,000 enemy soldiers like that. As Alfred Lord Tennyson says in the poem, God, the angel breathed in the face of the foe as he passed. They all died. And so, you know, did Abram stop and think about all this? <laughs> did he say, oh boy, I better look up in Scripture and find out what I should do here? <laughs> well, obviously not. I didn't have any Scripture to look into. He didn't even have Genesis, <laughs> let alone 1 John. But again, we keep, it keeps, we're kept reminded of the fact that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if it's true now, it was true then. Because God doesn't change, and truth doesn't change. Truth is immortal, because God is immortal. And so, Abram knew this to be true in himself, because I think the Spirit of God witnessed to him. And he was willing to take this small force of his against this vast army, because God was in him. Now, he may have had these other thoughts about Lot, but this passage in, in Genesis seems to indicate he didn't stop and think about it and say, well, see, this guy Lot's a real jerk, but maybe I better think about helping him. No, just like, Lot's in trouble, I'm going to go help him. And I don't think it was just brotherly love that caused him to do it. Lot was selfish, Lot was greedy, Lot was foolish, but Abram had forgiven him in his heart, or else he wouldn't have made this effort. And I think God had given to him God's love for this particular man, Lot. And as a result, immediate action followed. Again, let me just read another little passage from, from 1 John. This, this is in chapter 3. 
We read these words. Do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of life into death because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and, does not, and, and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. How many times do you hear someone say, over the radio where it is, I love you all out there in radio land? Oh, sure. <laughs> Doesn't even know who's listening. Can't possibly love those you don't even know. Abram loved his nephew. In spite of his folly, in spite of his foolishness, Abram forgave him, and, and Abram immediately went forward to save him, to do all he could to save him. See, his love was not with word or tongue, but it was indeed in truth. He acted on behalf of his brother. He had this world's good, so to speak. He had an army. It wasn't large, but he had one. And he was willing to use it to save his <laughs> nephew. <laughs> the end is coming, yes. And so he would, would do that. And so I, I guess we'll have to pick up there next week with that. But just, just visualize this now. <coughs> He has 318 men of his own household. Who are these guys? Well, if you can just sort of picture in your mind modern-day Bedouin who lives over in that part of the world riding a camel, you've just about got it. They weren't Muslims, of course. <laughs> they were the followers of Abram. But that's what you have to visualize here, this horde of camels charging down the landscape with these guys with their, you know, wraps around their heads and fiery eyes as they went down the landscape to, uh, to the aid of, of Lot under the leadership of Abram. Was Abram leading them with his white beard flowing in the wind? I don't know. <laughs> Could be very poetic. But uh, he was nevertheless leading them to the rescue. 